This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. It was a geek universe, but still had the full range of cliques you would find in any normal high school. So it still had the jocks, and it had the geeks, except the jocks were geeks, and the geeks were geek squared, okay? Just magnified <laughs> just ta- it up. Yeah, yeah, just magnified it. So take your bell curve of who you find in, in, in high school and shift it on the geek spectrum. Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked, a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there. Before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is Your Hometown. My guest is Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of the most popular scientists on the planet. No, the universe, or should I say the expanding universe. He has a wildly popular podcast. Welcome to Star Talk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. He's on television, where he's helped revive the epic series Cosmos that originated with Carl Sagan, whom he met when he was in high school. What does knowing our place in the universe do for us? Maybe the answer is everything. He's written numerous books, and he's the director of the world-renowned Hayden Planetarium, part of the Rose Center for Earth and Space that he helped launch at the American Museum of Natural History. The universe contains clusters of galaxies, like this one. Each cluster, home to trillions of stars, generates enough gravity to warp the space around it into a giant lens that distorts our view of the galaxies beyond. In speaking with Neil, I wondered what turning a giant lens on a different galaxy, his own childhood in New York City, would reveal about the origins of his mission to make science fun and intelligible to the public writ large. What inspired him? What were the forces that propelled him? And what were the barriers he had to push through to achieve his dreams? You'll hear he has a lot to say in all of this, beginning with one of his most important teachers of all, his hometown. Uh, my brother, my sister, uh, and my parents, we would take trips. We would visit institutions where there were adults who had expertise that went beyond your, you know, doctor, lawyer, you know, your traditional um, portfolio of what you might be when you grow up. And uh, looking back on it, well, <laughs> now that I've been a parent, I'm pretty sure they took us out each weekend just to wear us down so we'd just fall asleep when we got home. <laughs> That's surely a secondary motive. But a primary motive was basically to expose us to all the things that creative humans do and talented humans do. So living in New York City became an ideal backdrop for that. And ultimately, my brother would become an artist. He was deeply moved by what he saw, not only at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, there was the Guggenheim Museum, as well as, of course, the Museum of Modern Art. And he was, um, uh, he was forever 
altered in his life's ambition because of those trips. I, in a trip to the American Museum of Natural History, uh, we'd go around back and enter the Hayden Planetarium. And that first encounter with the night sky, which is something New Yorkers don't have when you think about it. You know, you, uh, particularly back then, because I'm that old, there was a lot of air pollution. Uh, I remembered walking to school and you'd have to brush ash from your shoulder that had landed from uh, trash that was burned in incinerators in all the apartment buildings. So uh, there was air pollution, buildings were tall, so a sight line up, chances are it landed on a building, uh, unless you look straight up, and then what happens to be straight up, just a little patch of sky. So really, my my awareness of the universe required the this artificial setting, the planetarium. So so there I was, a kid in the Hayden Planetarium, the, the lights dim. This, by the way, of course, this would happen in any planetarium. You sit in a big comfortable chair, the lights dim, the stars come out. Of course, I thought it was a hoax. It was definitely a hoax, because I'd seen the night sky from New York City, and I counted all 14 stars. So this is, <laughs> but, but it was an entertaining hoax, uh, <laughs> but a hoax nonetheless. And only later would we take trips to uh, the Caribbean, where I have family heritage, and I'd see the night sky un, in, un, unimpeded by pollution and by city lights, mm. and realize that what I saw in the Hayden Planetarium was not a hoax, it was real. And to this day, and quite embarrassingly, I might confess, if I'm on a mountaintop where the finest observatories are located in the world, and I look up, and it's just you know the sparkling beauty of the cosmos staring down upon me, I my first thought is, this reminds me of the Hayden Planetarium. <laughs> That's a very urban, embarrassing way to describe the actual universe. But that's how um, imprinted I had become. I was literally starstruck uh, at that time. So, so that set the seeds. I, I knew I liked the universe, but I didn't, I didn't think that you could become somebody who studies it. You know, at age nine, you just do what feels good. You don't do what, you're not thinking career. By the time I was 11, uh, I had, you know, I'm entering sixth grade, and, you know, I thought I, I was a man about town, <laughs> a man of the world. <laughs> At age 12, it was like, I'm almost a teenager. I can, <laughs> I can think about my grown-up years. And my friend, Philip Branford, he pulled out a pair of binoculars, and the moon was in the sky, and I looked at the moon through the binoculars, and there it was. It wasn't just a bigger moon. It was a better moon with craters and mountains and valleys and shadows. And all of a sudden, the moon became this sort of tactile place. We're home. <laughs> Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. Oh, jeez. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. And I was with him when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, okay? And you can see it on TV. Uh, we were on, it was in the summer, we were visiting his relatives in Virginia, yeah. and there wasn't a little black and white TV, but still the moon was a little distant to me. 
But it wasn't until I saw it through binoculars that it became a, a world, a place. And I said, if simple binoculars can do this with the moon, imagine what telescopes can do with the rest of the universe. And I aligned important decisions for the rest of my life to become an astrophysicist. It was his decision to pursue science, but it was his parents who had put him in position to make that choice. From taking him to the planetarium to moving when his father got a new job that paid more and took them out of subsidized housing to a leafier neighborhood, Riverdale. Now, if you Google them on a map, you'll see that the Castle Hill housing projects in Riverdale are on opposite corners of the Bronx. One faced sunrise, the other sunset. In Riverdale, by the way, Neil's new home was in an apartment complex called the Skyview. After I got my first telescope, um, the first telescope that I purchased, okay, um, with my own money that I earned from walking dogs, of which there were many living in the Skyview apartment complex, and uh, I earned money, 50 cents per dog per walk, which adds up very quickly. And, of course, I, I would drag that to the roof, and I'd be in my solitude there just me, the telescope, and the universe as accessible as it can be from New York City. The elevation, which for those listening, the Castle Hill section of the Bronx is sort of the southeast corner of the Bronx. Riverdale's the northwest corner of the Bronx, about nine miles apart. But the elevation is drastically different. And Castle Hill is about 23 feet above sea level. And the Riverdale section of the Bronx where the sky view was is 231. Yeah, not, not so only that, drastic difference. You, you did your homework there. And not only that, I would later learn that the hill on which the Skyview apartments were built is one of the highest elevations in the, in, in the entire city. And so to have a very tall building on a high hill where I would then take my telescope, uh, that was, uh, it was special. And I, I looked over out over the Hudson to the uh, Palisades of New Jersey. You can see not only the Tappan Zee Bridge looking north, but the George Washington Bridge looking south. Stu stupendous sunsets. And especially when the uh, early crescent moon is, uh, is suspended there in the sky, sometimes with Venus. Um, it's just a gorgeous place to continue to be inspired. And do you remember the move from Castle Hill to, to Riverdale? To yes. Uh, I remember that we were the first family to live in the apartment that had been built. The Skyview apartments were relatively new. I also remember this, uh, it was in the mid-60s, uh, mid, early to mid-60s. I also remember that people were picketing outside the building. This was in the Riverdale section of the Bronx to prevent black people from moving in. And this was odd. I was like, why are these people, why do they think I'm different? Because um, here I am just a kid in school thinking about the universe. I'm not thinking I'm some black kid and there are people who don't like me because of my skin color. That was just really weird. Uh, this was a sort of luxury apartments. I mean, I think it was for the like, upper middle class um, because three huge apartment buildings brilliantly conceived to surround a park. There were tennis courts. There was... Um, uh, a rec center, a little a little cafe, 
and there was a there was a skating rink. That's where I learned how to skate. I became a, an ice guard, a rink guard. Uh, became pretty good. I mean, you know, I was nimble, I should say, on my feet on the ice. So uh, this was very different from the Castle Hill housing projects. I can I can tell you that, and that happened because my father uh, ended up getting a job. I mean, he was you know he was in school. Uh, my mother was a homemaker. And so our income was very low at the time, and my parents were very frugal. And they remained frugal throughout their lives, even when the income outstripped the threshold for, um, for living in the middle-income housing projects. Um, other things I remembered about this move, that the bathroom had a fluorescent light, and it was just so bright. And it was, and it it flickered before it turned on, and it was like, mm. wow, this is really modern. I just remembered thinking that. It's another little thing. It was like the faucet in the bathroom had hot and cold water coming through the same spigot, so that you could make warm water. Okay, <laughs> I came from the housing project. There was the cold water and the hot water one, and you'd have to like shove your hands quickly left and right to try to balance it out. Just to me, these were simple expressions of a modern future, a future that I was ready to see happen, having visited the 1964-65 World's Fair. All's fair, but the skies in Flushing Meadow for the opening of the New York World's Fair. The steel unisphere, 12 stories high and light as lace, is the focal point of the great international exposition. The first of the 70 million people who will come to the fair in the next two summers brave the downpour and the puddles. And which, uh, which a lot of interesting things were there, including the Pietà from the Vatican, or, or yes. you know, from the gifted, not gifted, but loaned alone, for, yeah. for that occasion. The Vatican had a pavilion. So holding aside the international dimensions of this, there was a very strong messaging about the role of science and technology in shaping our future. From the, um, you know, the, 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 the earth, the, the gift of U.S. steel, the, 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 the tilted earth, which is now the symbol of, of Flushing Meadow, I was imprinted by that as well. That was pre-universe for me. That, was, that got me thinking about the future and what role science and technology might play, will play, will have to play to make that happen. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because one of uh, your kind of predecessors in what you do, of course, was Carl Sagan, who grew up in Brooklyn, and he talked about how the 1939 World's Fair and the world of tomorrow that he engaged with as a little kid also excited him about the, in the very same way you're describing. So those two World's Fairs played a role for both of you on your journeys. Yes, uh, precisely. And we were approximately the same age. Uh, he might have been five or something, but, you know, the same, in the same chapter in one's life, we were both exposed to what the future might be. And, of course, 1939 would be followed by the Second World War. So a lot of that promise was sort of de uh, uh, deflected by the turbulence in the world. Uh, of course, in the 65 World's Fair, we're in, still in the middle of the Cold War, yeah. where the world is held hostage by two warring superpowers. So you're, you're viewing the sky, you're taking in the cosmos as a little kid, but you've got other people's eyes on you. As you mentioned, when you moved in, there were picketers. You've talked about how when you were up there, one out of every three times, the cops would be called. So how did that feel to know that you were being watched in that way as you were, in a sense, going way, way out into space with your own imagination? If I said one in three times that 
police came up. That's what it felt like, but it, it probably wasn't that high. It might have been closer to one in five. That's still uh, a lot. One in seven. Yeah, it's still, it's still real. In, in, in all fairness to the people who called the police, um, I used telescopes that required electricity, and my dentist happened to be on the 20th floor, and I had a long extension cord that I would lower down, and he would plug it into the, <laughs> into a power outlet uh, on his balcony. So if someone saw somebody on the roof lowering what looked like a rope, uh, I, I get it. I get it. But um, I, I'm, a, I'm a kid with ambition, and I know the world has problems. Uh, my parents, uh, my father, especially in the 1960s, was active in the civil rights movement and, and uh, human resources with the city. He became a city official in the mm-hmm. 1960s. So I had daily awareness of this, but I, didn't, I chose to not carry that burden. Okay, I don't want to call it like water off a duck's back, but I was able to say, this is not standing between me and my goal, and so I will continue to pursue my goal. Today, you might call it microaggressions, mm-hmm. and, uh, and a psychologist might analyze it and wonder whether I was compartmentalizing it, and would it then manifest later in my life? And I don't have uh, that level of expertise to know whether I was successfully shielding myself from it or whether it worked its way in, uh, I can tell you that the number of people who did not share my own ambitions for what I wanted to be when I grew up, I was able to use that as a launch pad to excel even more. And I based that on some stories that I my father told me. He was in high school, Morris High School in the Bronx. Uh, he told a story where he's in gym class and he's online, and it's the track and field uh, unit. And the gym teacher is describing the different events and pointed to my father and said, in the, in the track part of this track and field unit, uh, see Cyril Tyson over there? He has the body type that would not work as a good runner. And he said, what? He's telling me what I can't be? preordaining what I what my ambitions should be or should not be and he in the years that followed lived in defiance of that of that assertion by his gym teacher and in so doing he started training he started running he became part of the track team he became world class world class in the 600 yard run he was middle distance runner he had the fifth fastest time in the world in that event. So anytime people questioned what I wanted to be when I grew up and said, why don't you be an athlete or why don't you be this or why don't you be that? I'd say, no, I want to be an astrophysicist. Now I want to be one even more. I read somewhere one of your teachers in a parent-teacher conference told your mom that you laugh too much. It was in elementary school. Yeah. It's right. And of course, your laugh is one of your signature <laughs> hallmarks. Anyone listens to you, loves your laugh. It's part of who you are. And I was thinking, what was that teacher missing? And how were you using that laughter in class? I laughed at funny things. It was more of a guffaw. And I, um, I came to realize now as, a, as an educator and as a scientist I came to realize that so much of school is about homogenizing your behavior. And the most homogenized behavior in a class is the person who is praised 
as the really good student. Mm -hmm. So, no, you don't speak up in class, you pay attention, you listen, you speak only when you're spoken to, you study hard, you get good grades, you do everything they want you to do. And that's considered an excellent student. And then I wondered, can you be an excellent student if you don't fit that mold? If you have a social energy that spills out of the box that they want to draw around you. Suppose you have energy to learn that's not from the book they handed you, but from other books that you obtain from other sources that don't match a curriculum that's being handed to you. Um, I was highly active. My, my parents bought uh, remainder books for me at local bookstores, but I had math books, physics books, astronomy books. Um, I, I had I must have had several hundred books in middle school. No, maybe about a hundred books in middle school. Uh, and, and the whole library probably cost no more than 10 or $20. So um, I had a very uh, engaged middle school and high school life. Okay, I, for the money I earned from walking dogs, I was part of a local astronomy club. I not only bought a telescope, I bought a camera, I took photos, I created a dark room in our interior bathroom, which could be made completely dark. I took all my own photographs, I still have them organized and, and alphabetized. I, uh, I won a scholarship to study st um, uh, uh, historical stone monuments throughout the British Isles, such as what Stonehenge is the most and, and, and best preserved example. So I had a bit of astral archaeology when I was in high school um, and in my first years of high school. I was at part of an astronomy camp that lived nocturnally in the Mojave Desert. Uh, all of this happened, okay? And my grades were average. And all of a sudden, the system's box is what is 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 the is the metric it, it, it's it's a metric of what it is is in their judgment you might become in this world yeah. and no teacher throughout my entire life and I, I went to public schools my entire life new york city public schools k through 12. no teacher at any time ever said hey he'll go far there's someone you should watch out he he's he's on top he'll go far and you know why because they reserve that for people who get straight A's. That's their only measure of this. They, they reserve that to people who obey everything the teacher says. They reserve that for what they call and think of as the perfect student. But don't then presume that everyone else who doesn't fit that box will not achieve. I, I've known since I can think about this world what I wanted to be when I grew up and, and what I wanted to contribute to this world and how much energy I had for it. And the school system did not intersect this. And, and I'm glad I had this self-driven energy. I guess they call it grit today. There's a word for it today. Because um, without that, I, I would have gotten lost in the system. And do you, sure. think, do you think your tra trajectory might have been different had you been met with flattery by your teachers or just mere indifference? In other words, it seems like the resistance is what fed you almost, is what you're saying. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I've thought long and hard about that, more in my later years in school than earlier years. What I realized is if someone is assessing you, um, okay, let's say you have really loving family. It's, oh, you're great, you're this, you're that. Uh, that's as bad as if you have people saying, oh, you're no good, you'll never amount to anything. Because if, the, if you think you're great, 
and you're not. This, uh, this is a rude awakening that is coming your way in your life. And if you think you're not great, because people tell you that, and you are, that is a completely lost resource uh, in this world. I think of it for society and civilization, beyond even just the lost life of ambition that the person could have uh, realized. So what you want is an accurate understanding of your talents. And so I never really paid attention to people who said I would not amount to anything, or even the, in the rare case when people said, oh, you're amazing, you're this, you're that. No, I'm going to analyze this myself. Otherwise, you will claim a lost opportunity and blame the wrong reasons. Mm. You might think you're discriminated against. I have to know if someone, if, if there's an opportunity that did not come my way because I was not talented enough in whatever dimension you would measure this, or because there was outright discrimination. You have to know that, otherwise it becomes too easy to say everything not going right in my life is because they don't like my gender, they don't like my sexual preference, they don't like my skin color, and you want to be accurate there. Otherwise, you're, you'll be angry, you get angry. And in fact, in fact, um, if it is because of these discriminatory ways, Try, if you let it get to you, then you become even more angry and then you lose your arc of life, your, 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 your professional arc where you could have become much more, but now you're, you're deflecting energies. And, and I get it, 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 can, it, it is so, um, it can make you so angry, not only to witness it in others, but to have it happen to yourself. But at some point, you gotta ask, are you gonna martyr yourself to change society uh, by by saying, I'm going to fight this, and some people have, and not all of them are alive today for having done so. Or do you focus on your own life? And I focused on my own life. That life unfolded in a set of schools, in a neighborhood, and in a home where Neil was a member of an accomplished family. His mother, Tony's family, had come from Puerto Rico, and she went on to become a gerontologist. His paternal grandmother, Ultima Tyson, had been born on the island of Nevis, like another famous New Yorker, Alexander Hamilton. She came to New York to raise a family. Exactly. And the family then rose up. So my father then became a city official, an yes. uncle who became a, an attorney. Yes. My aunt became a, a, um, a school teacher. Uh, and another uncle became a nurse. So everyone became professionals. And she had no more than a sixth grade education, but she knew the value of education. She knew how to put the guiding light uh, in, into place. She also ended up living with Neil's family toward the end of her life. And in that same apartment were his mom and dad, his sister Lynn, and his older brother Stephen, the artist. Now, as a younger brother myself, I was curious to know what that was like. You guys lived on the eighth floor, and you shared a bedroom with your older brother Stephen. And I was going to ask you, sharing your room with your brother, whose decor, whose music, whose dreams dominated the room, or did you... Did you somehow oh, manage a way to coexist peacefully? No, no. He was an older brother, so he dominated everything. Okay? <laughs> His older brothers win every time. And uh, I, I would be in there. We had a TV in the room, and I'd be watching a TV show. He'd come in and just change the channel. 
and lay down on the bed and start watching. I wouldn't ask what I was watching or is it interesting. So that, that's the little brother syndrome. You get, you, you learn I'm to. I'm one too. I'm one too. Okay. So you learn to adapt to that. He was only two years older, but that two years is a lot when you're eight and 10 or six and eight. So my little corner, it was, I was much neater than he was. I was a little more fastidious. And my little corner had my bookshelves and my, I kept a neat bed and uh, I was, I was pretty organized. So yeah, he, he dominated that room uh, and, and his mess would spill over. Then it was the era where you'd have beads that separate two spaces. So we bought these beads and it turns out they were just completely noisy. Like every time you went through it, it was, it was like, plus they didn't stop noise from the other side from coming through. So, so it was an interesting experiment in, in, in beading a, a beaded divider, which was all, the, all in style back in the 1960s. But If you could give us a sense of the, give us a sense of your home, the feeling of the place. The, the look, oh, growing the smells. Up? Yeah, because you have these interesting influences, the Afro-Caribbean through your father's side, the Puerto Rican uh, influences through your mother's side, that kind of blended house. What did, the, what did the house feel like? What was the, when you think about it in your mind and you go back there in your memory, what does it feel like? So uh, the way you even asked the question presupposes a certain cultural uh, blending. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what happened. What happened was we just had a household. And my father went to work, worked long hours. My mother maintained the household. My father would cook and clean on the weekends. So he did his sort of domestic duties only on the weekends. And, and we had family dinners on the weekends, um, but not so during the week. Okay. Uh, he would get home too late and we all had homework and this sort of thing. Um, it, with regard to the cultures, the culture was not explicitly in the home. We had our own, we made our own home according to our own needs and our own desires. But Christmas vacations, we would take a trip to Puerto Rico and experience Puerto Rican culture over the holidays. We would go to the British West Indies and experience the culture there. So our exposure was real and consistent, but it was not something that happened daily at home other than uh, foods that we'd eat, okay? Uh, there's certain staple foods that were cultural foods. So, um, you know, meat patties or, or Spanish rice, uh, uh, pork was a major mm -hmm. food group <laughs> um, in this. So, yes, it affected cuisine, uh, but not in terms of uh, anything else that would happen during the day. My mother didn't try to get us to speak Spanish. My father didn't try to get, get us a West Indian accent or anything. By the way, we would also attend the West Indian Day Parade and the uh -huh. Puerto Rican Day Parade. Yeah, yeah. So, this, so yes, we, were, we knew about multiculturalism throughout this entire time. We were not insulated from it. And it was a fundamental part. And by the way, you could do that when you grew up in New York City. Um, if you care about cultures, your own and others, you would you step out and you watch people celebrate these cultures. And which is odd today when you see people tribalizing because of it. And I'm so disappointed in, in society 
when you you have to say I'm better than you rather than say oh that food is different can I try it oh that's interesting how'd you make that how why don't you try this that's I mean I was imprinted in that I saw that at the World's Fair, World's Fair. You know, yeah. I'm thinking yeah this is the future where we all live together come on now now thinking about your father's New York in particular I wanted to just dive in there a little bit he had done so many things he'd been the director of Harlem Youth Opportunities Unlimited he had worked for the Lindsay administration he had helped to to found 100 Black Men of New York with future Mayor David Dinkins Jackie Robinson he was really a, a man of the community when your father passed away in 2016 you wrote this very moving tribute to him and there's one line that stood out to me and I wanted to, to read it and get your thoughts on it you wrote uh, about him you said, this is addressed to him. You worked behind the scenes on this with your only reward, the quiet knowledge that the nation's largest city did not burn during the most turbulent years of the most turbulent decade in American history since the Civil War. It was dark when he came home. And uh, of course, I'm too young to fully grok the social cultural significance and meaning of what's going on in the city the plight of the disenfranchised and the frustrations and angers uh, and he would he had a job title that was longer than i could easily recite and people say what does your father do this is back when they would never ask what your mother did right they'd only ask you what your father did yeah. and uh, growing up in riverdale which is mostly not black um uh, I, it was the most common question i was asked what does your father do Right, like people wondering, what am I doing in why their neighborhood? Here? Yeah, yeah. yeah why, why are you here? And uh, so he, he was a commissioner under Mayor Lindsay um, of the Manpower and Career Development Agency, and that's a lot of words for you know an eleven-year-old kid to recite, or much less fully understand what it means. But my later years, looking back, recognizing that he um, he played a, a key role in ensuring that people who are otherwise would otherwise feel disenfranchised don't okay that there are job opportunities for you you know what is a riot if not the last desperate act of uh, the last desperate act when you know you have no other options news five minutes sooner from wabc new york this is charles garrett Sporadic violence has broken out in Harlem tonight following the news from Memphis, Tennessee on the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. There have been reports of outbreaks of looting and rock throwing in the Harlem area and the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. The trouble broke out after the news of Dr. King's death. Mayor Lindsay left Gracie Mansion to walk the streets of Harlem and is now meeting with local leaders and police officials. Here tonight, WABC's Bob Hart spoke to several Harlem residents on the death of Dr. King. These were the comments. I, I don't really know how to express myself, but I, I know that uh, I figured that he was the link between peace and war. <laughs> and, uh, what does it mean now, war? The link broke. You go through the 1960s, you know, Watts burned, and Detroit burned, and Washington burned, and... New York City, there were some isolated things, but we, we were the, the largest ghetto, as it was called in the day, in the country, does not burn in 1968, nor 1967, or any of these other times. It means there, there are glimmers of hope that people otherwise retained that didn't have them descend into a state of riots. And my father was behind the scenes in all of that.
And so no one writes articles on the riots that didn't happen no. in New York. It's just not, it's not news. And so everyone is looking elsewhere. And meanwhile, there is New York, the hot, sweltering nights um, of the 1960s. And did his work to you feel like a world apart? I mean, here you are yes. in Riverdale. He's doing, he's living there, but he comes home, as you said, late. His work is downtown or it's in Harlem. It would be removed no matter what he did, because I was doing astrophysics. <laughs> <laughs> I think pretty much everything is removed yeah, yeah. If, you're, if your kid is an astrophysicist. It would not be until I was in college and later that I'd look back and see and more deeply recognize and appreciate what my father did and how and why he accomplished it. also wondering, given the fact that you were coming of age at this really tumultuous time in New York and in the country, late 60s, early 70s, lots of things happening, some good, you know, some scary, lots of change, turmoil. Um, did you find in a way that the, the cosmos and the stars were almost more dependable than people? That Oh, yeah, that, that, that's, that was clear from... Uh, <laughs> from when I first saw that my building didn't have a 13th floor. I said, I think people might be the last entity I should be depending on in this world. <laughs> but it's also deep than that too, right? I mean, your father was a sociologist. He engaged his whole life in, in the laws of society, if you will, or the you know irrationalities of society and a man. And here you are called to the laws of physics. Um, uh, yes, he thrived in the uncertainties of human behavior. And in the way those uncertainties still come together and create a society in which people have to function. Mm -hmm. I would later, when we were building the Rose Center for Earth and Space, the new Hayden Planetarium, where I have to deal with the city and with departments in the institution and the whole bureaucratic structure of the museum and the Department of Education and the, the, um, the Landmarks Commission because the, that whole set of buildings was landmarked on that part of New York City. And, and we're about to rebuild it. What does that mean? All of this, I, I would, he would say, Neil, what's happening now? He was, like, he was like a kid in a candy store wanting me to just tell him all of this because, and then he'd come back to me with an analysis that is like there was no way I could have arrived there because our brains are just wired completely differently. And he would talk about the motives and what's driving people and what they really want versus what they say they want and how to navigate that and how to put something in front of people so that they don't distract with other things that would stop them. They see a goal. They see the prize. And then they align with you because we all see the prize. There are tactics and methods and tools to navigating people that were all new to me. In your memoir, you mention a few dates, but one of that, sta that stands out is you mentioned the date April 17th, 1973. Why is that date significant? It's because that was the date that you first dunked a basketball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Now, of course, that was a year where the Knicks were on their way to a second championship. You did something that 
every kid wants to be able to do, you did it. Yeah, in the, in the early 1970s, it was, a, it was a dry spell for the New York Yankees. And I was a big Yankee fan, a big dry spell. But the Knicks had Walt Frazier and Dave DeBusher and, and Bill Bradley, later Senator Bill Bradley, and, um, uh, and, so, and, and, and Earl the Pearl Monroe. This was a dream team, really. And, and they won championships. And it was a, a, a good time in my life when I was feeling good about the city and about the sports. Um, uh, at that time, in the street, it mattered that you were good in sports. You know, you couldn't hang out with people. If you were, there was no room for the nerd, all right? The nerd culture had not really taken root. And I, have, I, I date that from the beginning of the film Revenge of the Nerds. I think that film was the birth of nerds realizing that we are a community and we can find each other. And, and then we stopped getting shoved into the lockers by the football jocks. Why? Because as computers came up, they wanted to know how to use their computers. <laughs> and the nerds were the only ones who knew how to do that. <laughs> so our, our stock value, not only in the schoolyard, but in society, rose. Nonetheless, I was, I was still clear to me that you had to be athletic. And so uh, dunking a basketball, you not only had to jump high, but you had to have, your hands had to be large enough to hold the ball because the ball is in one hand. You can't, you're not so good a jumper that you can dunk with two hands, right? It's a one-hand stretch. And so I was able to do that. And I did it in Converse All-Star sneakers, which has very good grip on a, on a wooden floor. And so, so yeah, I, that was important to me. It was, a, it was a certain athletic achievement that I said, yeah, I can do that. that that's a, a bucket list. I take that off the list. Now let me get back to the universe <laughs> and continue contemplating the cosmos. So you accomplish this feat of dunking a basketball. You sort of go back to astrophysics, but you do take up another sport, which is wrestling. And you became the captain of the team uh, in high school at Bronx Science, wrestled at Harvard. It's an ancient sport and a very different form of competition. I was going to ask you, what drew you from dunking to wrestling. Yeah, on Grecian urns, there are wrestlers, not basketball players. <laughs> um, there's only one reason why I wrestled, uh, and I began wrestling in high school, um, only because I didn't know if we had enough money for me to go to college or to a college of my choice. And I knew that uh, there were scholarships were available for wrestlers in ways with more, the, the accessibility of that may have been greater than in other sports. Uh, and so it was, it was a tactic. Mm. And I ended up just falling in love with the sport and no longer thinking about scholarships at all. Just I, I fell in love with the purity of it. And the, uh, if you lose, you lost. You're not blaming someone else around the corner who dropped the ball that you tossed them. And so, um, and to be physically fit, to be agile, to be flexible, to be uh, nimble, all of the above, I, I greatly value just a, in terms of my physical being. And Bronx Science, which, you know, is a vaunted high school, people who grew up in the 80s know it from the show, Head of the Class, um, you went class of 76, Tell me about your Bronx science and, you know, how competitive it was. Yeah, it's, it, uh, the most formative years of my life were the years I was in, coming out of middle school, going into high school. 
it was formative in my life because other students around me were as motivated as I was to learn and to think deep thoughts. And it had nothing to do with the teachers. These teachers are drawn from the same pool of teachers that fill other high schools throughout the city. So it's not like this is a special school because it has special teachers. It's a special place because other students are special, okay? Special in the sense that they're, they're motivated. There's no one saying, hey, come over here and do some heroin. No, that's not happening in this school. And by the way, it was a geek universe, but still had the full range of cliques you would find in any normal high school. So it still had the jocks and it had the geeks, except the jocks were geeks and the geeks were geek squared, okay? Just magnified <laughs> just, it up. Yeah, yeah, just magnified it. So take your bell curve of who you find in, in, in high school and shift it on the geek spectrum. And so, um, but I, I enjoyed it. And so in that way, where did you feel like you most belonged and where did you feel m most like an outsider? I was a geek. I was a geek jock, and so I was totally jock, totally all there, especially as captain of the wrestling team. But I, I had very deep uh, respect and empathy and compassion for the folks on the other end of that social spectrum. To this day, I seem and feel myself as a protector of the geek class where if you wanted to be a superhero i would be the superhero so if there's a geek in trouble somewhere because there's some bully uh, trying to bully them some big strong bully bullying one of my geek people my geek brethren you just put up the pie symbol you know in the sky <laughs> okay <laughs> or put That's up some math <laughs> some mathematical symbol and i'll be there and I know I can kick some ass because I was captain of the wrestling team. And I also studied martial arts. So I could jump into that, protect the, the, this is back when you never really reported the, I don't know why, you didn't report bullies to the principal. You just kind of lived with them. You know, they were just part of life. And did you ever have and to use your fists? Did you have to? Never, never, never. So... <laughs> <laughs> it was it was because I realized I was also socialized, so I could socially divert attention and ask questions and just stand in the way. And I could be a possibly physical threat if they believed it, and they'd be accurate on some level with that thought. But but my point is no, I've never in fact, I've never been in a fight in my life. And I'm the only one growing up among all my friends who can say that. I'm a completely nonviolent person. And, and, and most people from the outside think of what you do, and they fall in love with the stars as kids. I know I did. I loved, I loved the stars. I loved going to the planetarium. But when I took an astronomy course in college and realized, oh, this is all math. Yeah. This is all physics. <laughs> you lost me. I was going to ask you, how did you translate that romance that you had for the cosmos when, into you know, a staying power when you realized... It, it, it discovered that it's, it's math and physics are really at the core of that unlock. Um, I wanted to do astrophysics so badly that I would do whatever it took to arrive there and learning that, yes, it, it requires math. And I remembered when I first took calculus. And just to be clear, if you don't otherwise know, if your listeners don't otherwise know, calculus is way more different from algebra. Yeah. 
than, than algebra is from arithmetic. Okay, so whatever challenges you had going to algebra, they're manifold greater going to calculus. Calculus doesn't even use the alphabet. It's squiggly lines. Yeah, it uses the Greek alphabet. Okay, now you gotta learn a whole other alphabet. And what does this mean? And why? And, what, and here's something that doesn't even have an, equation, an equal sign in it. What is that? And so I remembered looking at the book, opening it up on the day one, and saying, I will never understand this. Like, not ever. And, uh, and I said, but I need this to understand the universe. Because math is the language of the universe. So my ambitions, where I wanted to land was a propulsive force for me moving through the challenges of learning whatever I needed to learn. And that included the math and the physics. So I put in extra effort there and, and slowly these equations became more and more transparent to me. It was like a fog lifted. The transparency mm -hmm. to my understanding became more and more apparent. And so yeah, and so my hot, though my grades and high school were average, my highest grades were in math, uh, math and physics. So, and my lowest grades were in Spanish. <laughs> Embarrassing, because I had a Puerto Rican mother, but <laughs> just saying. Um, speak about whether it was competitive, uh, I guess it was, but I didn't care and I didn't think about it that way. I had students come up to say, what grade did you get on this? I wondered, like, why do they even care? Uh, I don't care what grade they got, why do they care what grade I got? And I would realize later that they wanted to know what opportunities would come my way. And, and they wanted to strictly compare. Again, you compare box things like what grade did you get and what score did you get on an exam. And this is how people think about the world. Um, to think the school is actually making a difference, I think overstates the case. All right. Um, if a school such as the Bronx High School of Science is only accepting you because you got a high grade on a test that they administered, you're already doing well coming out of middle school. You already know this stuff. You're already there. Now you collect these people together and they do great things and you say, oh, look what we did. No, excuse me. And, and take this all the way up. Let's look at Harvard, mm -hmm. okay? People say, I went to Harvard. I did Harvard this and Harvard that. Well, excuse me, who does Harvard admit? They admit the cream of the cream of the cream in their high schools. Before your senior year, you knew who these people were, okay? And so Harvard then collects the people who are already, uh, already upwardly mobile and had got their life uh, 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 a path tattooed on their arm. And then they do great things and Harvard wants to say they had rat's ass to do with it. Excuse me? Okay, if you want to believe you had something to do with it, the Bronx High School of Science and Harvard should do the following. They should go to the middle school, go to the high schools, and get people who are perfectly average, okay? Where nothing stands out about them. Then send them to Harvard. See if you can make something stand out about them. If you can, now I believe you had something to do with that student body. Until you do that experiment, you've got nothing to show me.
are your coming of age years in New York, that chapter of your life, and the New York of today, almost like different universes for you? And how do they exist for you in terms of the way that you relate to the city? You know, when you grow up and you don't know anything else, your world is just is normalized into what you expect and think things are. I think that's true for all children and to their gain or to their detriment. Whatever is going on is normal. So growing up, uh, especially going into the 1970s, there were seven homicides a day, 2,000 murders a year in New York City. There were, in the 1960s, there was a garbage strike. So there was garbage everywhere. And even when there wasn't a strike, there was still garbage everywhere, just less of it. One, the measures of this, I like finding measures of things. Um, in the early 1960s, right up to maybe 1965, movies portraying New York City were postcards. Postcards. Just take a look at Breakfast at Tiffany's. It was, here she is at the, you know, Lincoln Center or whatever, Rockefeller. You know, it's, it's a postcard of the city. security prison for the entire country. A 50-foot containment wall is erected along the New Jersey shoreline, across the Harlem River, and down along the Brooklyn shoreline. It completely surrounds Manhattan Island. All Beginning in the late 60s, movies that were filmed in the city changed. And it was about the grit and the grime and the violence and the right and the, the, the nadir of this was Escape from New York, where the government turned the movie Escape from New York, where the government turned Manhattan into a prison. Okay? They said, forget it, let's just make the whole thing a prison. All right. But my point is, um, that's the city I grew up in. And the drugs and the sex trafficking and the Times Square and the triple X movie theaters and and uh, all, that was life. And here I am becoming an astrophysicist in the middle of that. Okay. Then the 80s come and into the 90s. And I say, wait, these are things are slowly changing here. Wow, it doesn't have to be like that. Oh, my gosh, Bryant Park? They're showing movies in Bryant Park? And, and plus, the bombed out South Bronx. I mean, just look at, uh, you know, the inner city, the ghetto known in its day. It was like, it was, seemed almost entirely hopeless not knowing that decades are not a long period of time in the history of a city relative to the history of my life growing up. So a decade is my whole life, that I can, my whole conscious life by the time I'm 15. Point is, when I look at the city today, even with the strife we've been through, even after September 11th, the city is cleaner, it is safer, it is kinder, it is more uh, uh, family friendly than any time I grew up. And how often do you get to say that about where and when you grew up? Because so often the rose-colored glasses come on. Back in my day, things were safer and we could do this. We left our doors unlocked. and we, It's like, no, not in my day, <laughs> okay? No, no. Every measurable thing about the city today is better than when I grew up, period. So when I compare the two, they're two different universes, but it is the greatest source of hope 
I have ever encountered. Anyhow, you ask about childhood and now, that's the difference. And I think about that every day. People say, oh, when you were captain of the wrestling team, do you wish you were still wrestling? I used to dance as well. Mm -hmm. Do you wish you were still dancing? And it was like, no, no. And I can't tell you how many times people say, oh, do you want to, I, when they learn I used to dance, they say, oh, do you want to go on dances with the stars? Because I'd be a star and the star and the thing. I say, no, no. Uh, by the way, when I was dancing, no one was publishing my books. Why? Because I hadn't written any books yet. Uh, when I was wrestling, yeah, I was in really good shape, okay, but I, I wasn't making any money uh, doing other things. I wasn't writing the way I am today. So when I look at my life, I see it as a series of chapters in a book that time has written. And when, if I look back on those chapters, it's not to relive them. It's, yeah, I, I'm happy to remember them, but not to long for them. Because to long for them is to live in the past when you don't have access to the past. All you have is access to your present and to your future. And if you have any control of your present and future, what you should be doing, in my opinion, is writing that chapter. And you should have more wisdom in the present than you ever had at any previous moment of your life. So do something with that wisdom. So I have a couple of books that I'm still brewing that will have a level of wisdom captured in it that I could not have possibly written at any previous time. So I don't think about my past as something that I reflect on, uh, oh, the good old day. No, I just don't do that. I never carried pictures in my wallet back in the day when you would do that. I never carried, I had never had pictures on my desk of anybody at any time because I remember what you look like. I, I don't need a picture to, re I remember, okay? And in fact, you know what the picture does? It forces you to remember only that moment. Without a picture, I remember an entire video of everything that happened that I did with you. And so here's a guy who took pictures. I have thousands of, I took thousands of pictures. But they weren't to remember moments, but they were to pr preserve them, but not for me to relive it. CBS Sunday Morning did a profile on me. They wanted to take me back to the yes. roof of yes. the Skyview apartment. So we went back. So that was kind of fun. But I, but I wasn't saying, gee, bring me back to those days. No, no, <laughs> okay? Since then, I've used bigger telescopes and gotten better data in darker skies, okay? Since then, that's what I've done. But is the feeling still the same inside? The feeling that you felt on that, those magical nights when you were up there by yourself, taking in the universe, do you feel have that, still have that, that certain inner feeling that you had then. I've had better feelings since then on higher mountaintops with bigger telescopes. Mm -hmm. uh, so so mm -hmm. that's my point. Mm -hmm. Life continues to move. Every time you do a back loop into it, you're admitting to yourself that what's going on in your life now was not as good as what happened back then, either in thought, emotion, in kind, and in place. So now, there are certain things that happen only once. I do remember what it felt like first seeing the full night sky in the Hayden Planetarium. I do remember first seeing the rings of Saturn through a telescope, okay? And I wrote of this that I felt that I communed through time with Galileo, who, 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 who first saw the rings of Saturn through a telescope. I, and, and I had never seen them through a telescope before, and neither had he. I know that they exist, I've seen photos, but to see them with your own eyes? 
that that has that has power over you again because it tells you that what's in the sky is are not just points of light that they're real places so that's a that's a feeling that i uh, i work to repeat not by repeating the same action but by doing something new that i haven't ever done before and so that's how i've laid out my life otherwise you you sit back uh, you know it's like the person who threw the winning touchdown pass in a football game and the you know and then the trophies on the mantle and the photo of the they're being held up and every day you walk into the room and that's the picture and that's the one you want to relive i i don't i can't, i can't do that i choose to not do that i want more occasions where the future visions expressed in the New York World's Fair, uh, we should have one of those every 10 years, but we don't. I think every now and then we need something that the world can point to and says, this is, this is a safe, nonviolent, prosperous, healthy future that we can all align our resources to accomplish. I want to bottle that energy of that World's Fair and, and distribute it, not even sell it, distribute it to every next generation so they can think about the future the way I did, yeah. the way Carl Sagan did in 
sense and sensibilities. If you do something because I did it, that's not the reason to do something. If you do say, I want to be just like me. No, you should make your own life. Do your own things. So I don't that's very, value. That's very Whitmanian of you. That, that's, that, that is the essence of Walt Whitman. Don't take anything secondhand. You know, do it yourself. You know? Yeah, do it yourself. But I'd be delighted to help empower you to do it yourself. But I don't need reference to me at the end of this. So, so that's my, my first mm -hmm. comment. Second, by the way, there is a plaque, the last I checked, with my name on it, in the vestibule of the Bronx High School of Science. Um, there's a, I think there's notable graduates, and there's the eight Nobel laureates, uh, seven in physics, one in chemistry. I'm up there. I don't have a Nobel Prize, but I'm up there among them. And I I'm charmed that my name would be listed among others in the school. Um, that school has a mural out front that has very famous scientists and engineers of the past. It's a mosaic. And, you, and I walk under that every day. Um, rumor has it that the money that was going to pay for a swimming pool, an indoor swimming pool, was instead spent on a mosaic, uh, which pissed off many people. But then I realized a mosaic tells stories in ways that swimming pools don't. And walking under there, there's like Galileo and Newton and Marie Curie and Imhotep. And there are these people I say, these are other human beings who have lived among us, who have achieved great things. That's what I want to do with my life. I want to, not, not so much achieve great things, I want to live to my potential, whether or not that achieves a great thing. And so if someone seeing these plaques is motivated, okay, I don't want to take that away from them because I was motivated by these great historical figures that are uh, in, in, in the mosaic. Uh, but, uh, so if you want to find me I don't know. Um, how about this? Let's put a plaque on the Tudor City overpass. Okay. <laughs> Over 42nd Street, okay? Mm -hmm. Right in the middle of that overpass, perfectly aligned on the street. Put a plaque there. And on that plaque, say, twice a year from this vista, on these two dates, enjoy Manhattan Henge with the sun setting precisely on the Manhattan grid. A concept first popularized by Neil deGrasse Tyson who as a child visited Stonehenge was forever influenced by that visit and wanted to bring a little bit of that alignment, cosmic alignment to his hometown. And uh, Manhattan Henge, now a word lifted into the Oxford English Dictionary. So my first ever photo of Manhattan Henge was actually 34th Street with the, with, um, the Empire State Building, but the best place to view it is in the middle of the street without blocking traffic, and that would be on the Tudor City overpass right off of 2nd Avenue. So that, so that way, you're not remembering me, you're remembering something I gave you. It was hidden in plain sight. Yes. Yeah, I guess like the blade of grass. Yes. 
Exactly. It's there in plain sight, but you don't think about it. You can't read that passage without thinking about having trammeled this blade of grass for not having thought of it. But now when you get to the next blade of grass, it's there for you to embrace. Yes. So don't remember me. Remember what I have offered. And that is Manhattan Henge. I love it. Neil deGrasse Tyson, let's lie there. Thank you so much for taking me to your hometown. If you're interested in experiencing Manhattan Henge, it's coming up on Memorial Day weekend, which also happens to be Walt Whitman's birthday. And again in mid-July. Definitely check it out. Meantime, thank you for listening. Your Hometown is a Kevin Burke production. For more, please visit our website at yourhometown.org, where you can listen to all our past episodes and find our show notes and artwork for each guest. You can also follow us wherever podcasts are available and on social media channels like YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, please look up the show's New York City series page, including information on live events on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now I'd like to thank the amazing team that I'm starstruck by, the team that works with me on Your Hometown, beginning with our executive producer, the great Robert Krolwich. Then there's our art director, Nick Gregg, our editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, composer-performer Sterling Steffen, and our researcher, Shaquille Khan. Also, a special thanks to my wife, Anna, for helping me shape the narrative of this episode. Our branding website designed by Tama Creative, and our social media team is led by Cure and Jessica St. Bear. A special thanks, too, to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York. I also can't possibly thank enough the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and all our financial supporters for their belief in this series. Until next time, thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere, everywhere in the cosmos is somewhere.